0: Greetings to all of God's people. This is Mordecai Joseph. Uh, We are now in lesson 30, 35, I believe. Yes, lesson 35. And last time we are cut in the middle of of a subject. And let's go back to it uh, from the beginning so we can have a continuity. In Exodus chapter 19, God is appearing to Moses and he's telling him this. And uh, as we were, I believe, in uh, in verse 3. Uh, we read, and Moses went up to God and, and the Lord, that is eternal, called to him from the mountain saying, thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. You see the personal intimacy there that God is conveying to them and the personal involvement. And that's talking about a nation that for, uh, probably about 200 years while they were in Egypt. Some, some people think, not, not uh, reading the Scripture carefully and not having a context and background, that there were 400 years in Egypt. They were not. It was uh, roughly about 200 years, maybe 220, and that includes a good period of time of that, uh, the days of Joseph, where he lived 110, and he had a uh, good life, and uh, all of Israel, that in, uh, his, ch- his brothers, survived him. And they too had a good time. It was only after that, when Joseph and his brothers all died, uh, that slavery began. So it was a very short period in that sense, uh, roughly about 100 years of uh, bondage. And uh, first was not too bad, and then gradually got worse and worse. And so in the process, they totally forgot about God. I mean, after all, 100 years is a long time in slavery and captivity and idolatry and, uh, the more they continued to, to walk away from God, the worse the, the bondage was. And to begin with, it started because of their disobedience to God and rebellion. And the great love that developed toward Egypt and the culture of Egypt and the social life of Egypt and the etiquettes of Egypt and the idol, idolatry of Egypt and the, the, all, all the evils of Egypt. That's the reason why they were in that, in that state of, uh, of affairs. And so, in spite of all that, God, He says, I brought you to myself. And because because he made a covenant with the fathers, and he had a purpose for them, an eternal purpose for all of humanity, therefore he was not about to be sidetracked even by the rebellion. Because God is in charge, and the whole earth, he said, is mine. So I'm going to do whatever I want to do, and this is what he has in mind. As, as, it says in, uh, as we shall see in verse 5. And so in verse 5 we read, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, that is if, there's a big if, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. In other words, I'm God, and that's who I decided to do it. That was the plan of the divine family, to choose you, God could have chosen uh, Noah, could have chosen Abel, or uh, maybe later on after that, uh, other men, and through them to start this process, but he had not chosen to do so. He had done it through Abraham, Isaac, and not Ishmael, and not Esau, but Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and regardless of what kind of uh, alleys and byways and highways and lowways, you know his people were going to go through, since God is the God of the whole earth and everything is His, that's the way he's going to do it. So it has nothing to do with the righteousness or unrighteousness of Israel, or the rebellion, or how much the vexing, or how much of going to idolatry and rejecting had absolutely nothing to do with them. It has to do with his covenant or the fact that He's God. The fact that he can do anything, or the fact that he can do the impossible, and that was his plan, and that was the plan of the God family, and they're going to bring it to pass. And so, there is never any need for him to reject his people just because they went astray. Because he has the ability to kill and to make alive. And when people go into idolatry and sinfulness and transgression, he has the ability to bring them back to life, spiritually speaking. And so he intended to do that with Israel. And so forth. somebody to come, rise up, and constantly throw that that uh, deception into the air and deceive the whole world with it. that God rejected his people. In other words, he is incapable, which is a blasphemy against him. He is incapable of doing what he said. And therefore, he chose us instead of them. And that's an abominable lie. And many people believe it to this very day, unfortunately. Some of them call call themselves the people of God. And so in verse 5 he says, The earth is mine, therefore I'm going to choose you above all nations, whether you like it or not. And verse 6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. In other words, you're going to be a kingdom, in no sense you might say, you're going to be, uh, for me, and you know, are going to be, to me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, in spite of you. You see? In spite of what you do, I'm going to make you be that kind of a people. That's the reason why I never forsake them, either in blessings or in punishment, to this very day. That's why the trouble of Jacob is coming upon all of Israel. Because God is going to restore them to himself, and marry them. And yes graft others also into the commonwealth of Israel, but never replace Israel. Is a big lie started to be taught 2,000 years ago, and many believe it. And so, verse 7, so Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. And that is the elders, the representatives of all the nations that spoke for them. And what did they say in verse 8? And all the people answered together and said in unison, All that the Eternal has spoken, so will we do. And they had the good intention of doing it. But of course, that's not the way things turned out to be. But nevertheless, God was going to fulfill what He said He will. Even when Israel rebels against Him. So, this has eternal implication that his nation, his people, is going to be a chosen generation, and in a special place among all the nations of the earth, to the end of time, when time ceases to be time, into eternity. And that's why we see that which God had planned in, in detail, long in advance, into the future, with the heavenly Jerusalem, when it descends upon this earth, which none of us can claim that that heavenly Jerusalem is a temporary one, is a physical one. We all agree and know and believe that none of us, and even in the false churches of this world, none of them ever claims that heavenly Jerusalem is not an eternal city. And yet all then see and know and deny that the names of the gates are the names of the tribes of Israel, which means Israel will have a place for eternity. In that position. And none others will ever replace Israel. Never, ever into eternity. Because that's the way God meant for it to be. And so it shall be done. And it's worth repeating what Paul said. And it's worth repeating it many times. Let God be true and every man a liar who says otherwise. And that's in essence what he was saying in Galatians. Though we, or an angel from heaven, gives you another message. And this is the message that he was talking about and people did not understand what he's talking about. Not having his background. If anybody else comes and brings you another message, let him be accursed. Because it's not of God. And he said it twice. And so, that's exactly what God did. Later on, when you see... In the book of, uh, of Peter, that is first Peter, an apostle, he is, who is going to be one of the foundations in the heavenly Jerusalem, ruling over one of the tribes of Israel. You see, not ruling over the church, from the concept of the world, but over the Church of God, from the concept of God, Israel. You see? And it's not a spiritualized Israel. It is Israel who has now the Holy Spirit, but nevertheless, physical Israel that is now became spiritual because God is going to bring all of them repentance and redemption and salvation and deliverance. And He's going to make them His people again and make a new covenant with them. And they shall be His people forever. As I said in many other places, as long as there is a sun up there in heaven and a moon and stars, So will the nation of Israel always stand before me, forever. And so when Peter went to his people, because he was a minister to the circumcision, that means to the children of Israel, and this is exactly where he went. He went to Babylon, where the major portion of the Jewish nation was, and on the other side of the river, as Josephus tells us, were the children of Israel, the ten lost tribes, so to speak. Everybody knew where they were at the time, it was not an issue. Who are they and where they are? They themselves knew who they are. Many of them came to Jerusalem to bring offerings in the temple because they still retain a measure of the faith. And so this is what Peter is saying to them. He's not saying it to the churches of Revelation 17. Those who call themselves the people of God who are not of Israel. But he said in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 that In essence, he's reminding them, his own people, the people that he was speaking to, that he is the minister of circumcision. And Paul told us uh, very plainly in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 7 that the gospel of the circumcision was given to Peter and the gospel to the uncircumcision, you know, to the others, that God was going to graft not nations but individuals. That was the commission of Paul not to convert all the nations. uh, was for him. And to begin with, Something very important to realize, all the apostles, until the end of time, were under the impression that Christ was coming in their day. And therefore, many of the statements that they made were made with this in mind, thinking that was the end of time. And so they thought, well, this is a time where God is going to set his hand and deliver all the nations of the earth. And so with that in mind, Paul thought, well, I'm going to conquer the whole world, so to speak, for Christ. And obviously, that was not the intent uh, that God had in mind. Uh, they were just uh, doing a, a little work at the time in comparison to what is going to be done in the future. And, and ultimately speaking, 2,000 years later, at his coming. But Peter reminded his people. His own people. His physical people. Some of them were becoming now spiritual because they believed the truth. And they received the Spirit of God. And they became followers of the Messiah. Their God, whom they had known from e- from the time of old, from Egypt, so to speak, from the fathers. He reminded them what God told them when they stood before Mount Sinai, that is, their fathers, that you, if you repent, if you obey my voice and commandments, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And yet there are some in our midst who think today, well, that statement was made to ancient Israel, the physical Israel, but now we are. That means they were in one church, we are in another church. No, we are not another church, we are the same church some of us came back to God. That's all there is to it. And all the rest will come as time goes by. And ultimately, you know, in uh, the second resurrection. And so an awful lot of truth and knowledge and understanding was lost in between. And so that's what God is telling them here. And that's what Peter repeats to them. And that's what all the apostles have done. Who had the background of all this information that you read here in the book. And we shall read much more until we reach the last verse of the book of Revelation. So no one, no one can ever say, well, I never had an opportunity to know the truth, or I didn't know. And no one can say that the word of God was not preserved to give us this knowledge and understanding that God left us in ignorance. When God says, come out of Babylon," one he also shows us how. And as you go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, read it carefully, forgetting about all that you've been told, you can see it very plainly and very carefully. This is not something for super intelligent people. Any person can fully comprehend that, just reading through, bypassing all the deception and lies and the mixture of truth and error and and twisting of uh, facts and scriptures and all that. And so, God, later on, when He came in the flesh, when He sent His his twelve witnesses, as He came to His own, and He told them, You go to the lost people of the house of Israel, because they're my chosen people, this is the royal kingdom. This is the person through whom I'm going to convert all nations as time goes by. He sent twelve of them. Twelve of them, that is, twelve disciples. Well, how many did he send to the Gentiles? How many? You see? Paul was the one that was commissioned. Yes, in the beginning, Barnabas was helping him, but basically, Paul was the main one. Uh, the main apostle. And also had other helpers, you know, that uh, went to the Gentiles. So, in essence, you, you see here a sort of a ratio of twelve to one. Roughly speaking. Because even the apostles that went to the circumcision also had you know, their own helpers and other apostles that came later on. And so you see the emphasis of God in doing his work at the time. 12 ratio, 12 to 1. That's something to consider. Let's continue now with Exodus in uh, chapter 20. Where you see basically the marriage covenant. You see? This was the covenant Uh, And the word covenant is a little bit confusing in in, in English because you have covenant and you have testament and uh, at times they are interchangeable. And yet testament in specific is when somebody dies, that's when you have a testament, a covenant, you do something when you are alive. And yet because uh, Moses was commanded by God to offer sacrifices, so blood can be shed, in other other words, to, to ratify the covenant. So that in essence symbolized, already the death of the testator, the death of the God that made a covenant with Israel in the future, not at this time, where he himself in person now will come and shed his blood. And so it's an interchangeable word, covenant and testament. But uh, as Paul makes, makes it very plain, a testament is not a testament until the, the person that made it uh, died. Uh, it's for that. But obviously when God made it with Israel, he, he, he was not dead. Uh, and he was not about to die, and it was uh, 2,000 years uh, down the road, so to speak, or 1,500 years down the road, that he would come in the flesh and give his life, and die for them, and be resurrected, and heal them, and cleanse them, and, them and purify them, and take them back to himself, a bride without spots and without blemishes, and the others that he's drafting into that commonwealth of Israel. And so this is what we see here. Uh, the, the covenant... And the laws of the covenant, and then all those that you get him later on in chapter 21 and so forth, 22, 23, and the rest of the five books of Moses, uh, the laws, the statutes, the judgments, the precepts, the testimonies, the ordinances, all those things, the ones that are applicable, at least as time goes by, when there is a temple or there is no temple, and to this very day, all those things became a part of the covenant. And people were to abide by them, and that's why Christ said, don't think that I came to destroy the law, that is uh, the Torah, and that it was a generic name for the entirety of the body of law and code of behavior, all the prophets, you see, and all that they said, and all the teachings that they gave, and all the promises, and all the covenants, and all the the events to come, of which uh, they have prophesied, because I spoke through them, they didn't do it on their own, So I didn't come to destroy any of that, because until heaven and earth, shall pass away not one jot, not one tiny little dot of the entirety of the body of law. That is applicable. You see, underline that. That is applicable. Not, a, not any of that shall pass, you see, until all things be fulfilled and all things have not been fulfilled yet. And yet, the false churches coming out of ignorance and darkness, no background, no understanding, claiming that they are the true church, and leading others in the same path, and many that came out of it into the knowledge of the truth, books, still good measure of that deception with them, not realizing it, and therefore there is a mixture there of truth and error. True uh, you know, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so we have to be aware of that, and retain the good, and cast away that which is not. And so the covenant, that is, we see here in chapter 20, is based on what is called in Hebrew the ten words. Aseret, ten, dibrot. You see, uh, devar in Hebrew is a word or a thing, and devar is also a word. And uh, that's why the word of God is called the devar, you know, the logos in English, spokesman also. Devar comes from the word to le daber, to speak. And so for the ten, he chose uh, uh, the feminine form of it. Devar is in the masculine, debra is in the feminine, and the ten, Words, Aseret HaDibrot, that's in the feminine, the ten words in the feminine form. And uh, this is the only ten that he, that he called Aseret HaDibrot. So they're not called the commandments, they're called the words. The word of God, you see. And then for commandment, the word for commandment is Mitzvah. When you command, let's have vote that's in Hebrew, to command. Mitzvah, and that is a word that is generic and inclusive to all that God said do or don't do. And so, in the five books of Moses, you find what is called in Hebrew, the Taryag Mitzvot. That means an abbreviation of the uh, in Hebrew alphabet of the 613 commandments. And uh, many of them involve uh, rituals of the temple. And where there is no temple, they are not in force. And uh, then the rest are still in force and those things that are applicable are applicable to this very day and when the temple is rebuilt again then the others will be in force again as as you can see uh, later on in which we'll come to that in ezekiel and many other places and so it's the ten words the ten commandments as they call it in english but actually it's, it's the ten uh, words and every every single one of them is a command Everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God is a command. God never suggests, He commands. And so, the ten words in the covenant is based on the ten words, on the statutes, on the judgments, on the precepts, on the testimonies. All of them were included. And the reason why the ten words were spoken by God and written with His finger is very simple. God wanted to continue to speak to his people, but they told him, No, don't speak to us anymore, we're afraid we're going to die. So I said, Okay, that's the way you want it. So I'll talk to Moses in person. Otherwise he would have spoken to all of them, all the ten words and the statutes and judgments and precepts and testimonies, and he would have continued in person to give them instructions, as he did later on, in the flesh. You see? And that's the reason why only the ten are recorded on the t- two tablets, not, and the others are not. Because the people of Israel didn't want to hear him anymore. Had no faith. They were superstitious. They thought they will all be dead, which is a foolish way of thinking. But that's how, that's how far they were from him. And so you see all that in, included in the Ten Commandments. Now let's go to the book of Leviticus. And the reason is very simple. Israel, though they received the commandments, though they had the tabernacle constructed among them, though they were supposed to know how to behave themselves, how to walk before God, nevertheless they continued to, to offer uh, sacrifices to demons, to idols, as what own God in so will said to them in Deuteronomy, uh, at the end of the book. And then in Hosea, in other places by the prophets, And then later on, even quoted in the New Testament by Stephen, all this time, he says, you have offered to me a sacrifice in the wilderness. No, you did not. You were offering it to your own idols. So, it wasn't a period of righteousness in the wilderness, but a period of constant rebellion. And an awful lot of people in the Jewish community like to forget that. And there are many rabbis who are telling lies to their people that the children of Israel were righteous people. And they didn't want to come to the land of of Israel because they they wanted to stay in the wilderness and stay pure and stay close to God. It was anything but that. And unfortunately, uh, some people believe it without even checking into it. They swallow the words of men. They follow men instead of following God. But the ones that just read it for what it says, they believe God and not men. And God made it very plain that Israel was not walking with Him as they should. And so in the book of Leviticus, Uh, Moses tells them something that he's going to repeat again in uh, Deuteronomy. He's telling them in verses, uh, in chapter 26, we're not going to go through the blessing and the cursing, and the consequences of it, but what God wants them to remember in terms of the fact that he will never leave them nor reject them. He says in verse 40 of chapter 26, But, in other words, Moses tells them, you're going to rebel against God, you're going to stumble, you're going to flee from God, and God is going to flee from you in that sense, and is going to bring enemies against you, and destroy you, and afflict you, and bring diseases on you. But he says, nevertheless, in verse 40, but if they confess the iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness, in which they were unfaithful to me, This is what God is saying to Israel through Moses. And that they also have walked contrary to me. That is if they do it. And that I also have walked contrary to them. And have brought them into the land of their enemies. In other words, speaking about the future. When God is going to throw them. Spew them out of the land. Which he did first with the nation of Israel. And after that with Judah. And before that many times. Small captivities in the book of Judges. Again and again and again. God raises evil, evil leaders around them of the nations to smite his own people because they constantly turn into idolatry. But even the ultimate ones, when they totally threw them out of the country, out of the land, Israel and Judah, and then later own again, second time, second temple. He said, if they will confess their iniquities, and uh, verse 41, uh, the second part of it, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled... See, that was a problem. They have an uncircumcised heart. You know, they may have uh, maybe circumcised in the flesh, but their hearts are uncircumcised. And so it doesn't do you any good. And that's exactly what Paul was saying. What value is circumcision if your heart is uncircumcised? You see? Circumcision, he says, under this circumstances is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing if the person who is uncircumcised is obedient to God. You see? And so God says, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, and people don't like to say, I'm sorry because I am wrong, but He said, if they will accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham. I will remember, and I will remember the land. You see? In other words, God says, you always had the option. It is never, ever too late, no matter how far you went. And that's the reason why Christ gave the example of the prodigal son. He's speaking about Israel coming back to the Father, coming back to their God. And God is always there with open, stretched arms to receive them back. No, God never rejected them. And anybody who says otherwise is a liar. And uh, earlier, if we can uh, go back to uh, the beginning of the chapter, where God is telling them what is going to happen, and what will happen to them if they forsake him. In chapter 26, and verses 1 to 5, we shall read this, You shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image, nor a sacred pillar, which was a phallic symbol, uh, that was an item of worship in the days of old. In other words, they said, well, this is how we come back, come to life, that is. So they worshiped it. And, uh, you shall rear up for yourselves. Nor shall you set up in great stone in your land, which they did all that, to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. I am the eternal your God. Those are not. Verse 2. You shall keep my Sabbath. And people said today, well, we don't have to do it. We're spiritual. God says, you shall keep them. And reverence my sanctuary. I am the Eternal. And if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments, which is the entirety of the body of law, that is applicable, and perform them, not say, well, the law is done away with, we're spiritual, that's Jewish. It's not for us. You see, only those who are uncircumcised in their heart speak like that. Then I will give you rain in due season and the land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and so forth. In other words, they're going to be able to dwell in your land in safety and have plenty. And God will give them peace and all that. But if not, which they did, walk contrary to him and the evil... And walk away from him. God is going to bring all these evils upon them. Yet nevertheless, he says, in spite of all that. And he's speaking here about a period from the time of Moses. We're talking about 3,500 years ago. So he said, even 3,500 years down the road, or all the years in between. When you return to me. When your uncircumcised hearts are humbled. And you don't play games with the Sabbath or any other law of God claiming it's done away with, and believing the lies of the, of, the, of the Revelation 17 churches. You see? Then God says, I will remember my covenant with you. Some people think there are many that are part of the covenant, of the new covenant, when they, when they reject the law of God. You know, there is the terms of the covenant, and you can't do it. And so, that was the intent of the marriage that God offered to Israel. But Israel is to become the firstborn and the first fruit, the light of all the nations. So many other nations will follow in their footsteps and not be rebellious, where by being rebellious and walking after the nations, how are the nations going to know the God of Israel and the purpose for mankind and the destiny of man? You see, and who is the true God? And therefore, God says, in one sense, you might say whether you like it or not, you're going to do the job, no matter what it takes, even if I had to die for it. And he did. And even if we had to die for it, and we did, for 3,500 years. But even until the death and the second resurrection, God says, I will make you do it. You see? That will happen even in the future. Let's go now to Numbers, chapter 23. We will read more about the mind of God, about his church, about his people, about his feelings, about his people, and what he intends to do with them, and how in spite of their behavior and conduct he's going to deliver them. And so in chapter 23, the famous chapters of uh, the false prophet uh, Belum, Balaam, uh, who, who came uh, to the king of Moab to curse Israel. And ironically, this man, as I mentioned earlier, Babylon had an awful lot of the knowledge of the truth. There was a code of Hammurabi there. And also a mixture of their own misunderstanding and misinformation and idolatry. And so we see here a prophet that came all the way from Babylon. You see, land of the east. And a prophet that knew an awful lot of the code of Hammurabi, obviously, and was walking in righteousness to a large degree. And God spoke to him. And he spoke to God. And he was able to to curse. And he was able to bless. And had a good measure of righteousness in him. In other words, God worked with him on his level. And he worked with his people in Babylon, who were still his children after all, on their level. And when there was righteousness, he had respect for it. As Peter let on, would say, Of the truth I perceive that God is not a respecter of person. But in every la- in na- land, in every nation, in every tongue, where people fear God and, and humble themselves before him and do righteousness, God is respectful of them. So this is an example of Balaam the prophet of righteousness and also allowing some unrighteousness into him. And yet you see how God calls him, speaks to him, speaks through him, blesses his people through him, uh, in spite of the measure of wickedness that was in him, that is his greed for money, which is unfortunately a common aspect of an awful lot of people that uh, uh, should know better, that people of God, that ministers of God, ministers of Jesus Christ, but covetousness, still a part of the religion, Unfortunately, and has been from the beginning, that's why God said people who are to do His ministry, His work, should hate bribes and should not be lovers of filthy lucre, so to speak, as you read in the New Testament. Uh, So God recognized that weakness in His own people, in His own servants. I should try to to flee from that like the plague, not to be covetous either of power, self-exaltation of money or whatever. After all, if you're smart enough and you know what is really good, where you really, you know, you get your real money, you look far beyond that. The real money is above, not from beneath. That is corruptible. Some people haven't learned that lesson yet. It's still too earthly, too sensual, so to speak, uh, too physical. And so, this Belen, this prophet, there was a mixture of good and evil. There was a lot of good in him, a lot of righteousness. Uh, He's brought here to curse Israel but God intervenes because he's not uh, willing that this will happen so we find ourselves here now with Balaam coming to curse Israel in chapter 23 of Numbers in verse 19 we read this Uh, this is what Balaam is saying to Balak rise up Balak that is the end of uh, well in verse 18 then he took up his oracle that is his his, uh, word you know, the, the, the words that God gave him, that put in his mouth and said, Rise up, Galak, and hear, listen to me, son of Tippor. God is not a man that he should lie. And I think that is a very, very important statement for us to comprehend. That when God made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to their descendants until the end of time for eternity, and all the covenants that he made with them, he does not lie. And yet, the counterfeit church taught all of those that followed it, and many of us have been deceived by the same lie, that God is a liar. Even though they don't say it in those words. But by the mere fact that said that whatever he promised Israel, he totally forgot about it. And as some say in our midst, and I've heard it several times, well, Israel was the people of God. And once Christ came and he died, that was it. That's the end of the story. Now we are the people of God. God is saying here through Balaam, to Balak, and to all of us. God is not a man that he should lie. Nor a son of man that he should repent or change what he said. As Paul said, all the promises of God are irrevocable. All the covenants that he made are irrevocable. In other words, whatever God promised, he will keep and the gifts and the promises of God, he said, Paul, are without repentance or irrevocable. And so he says he's not, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will not, will he not do? Yet people said, yes, God is a liar. He made all those promises, but he changed his mind because they were rebellious. Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Now, why is Balaam saying that? Why is God saying that through Balaam to Balak and cause it to be recorded and for all mankind to read it, who read the Bible? Because he you knows what's in the heart of man, that people will accuse him of lying, swearing falsely to Abraham and never keeping his word. Where he spoke about his descendants, not spiritual descendants only, few that he is going to graft. But his physical descendants that come out of his own, he said, body. He made it very plain. Those who come out of your own body. You see? Those who become members of the faith of Abraham did not come out of his own body, and therefore they are not in that category. They are in the category of those who have been grafted, individuals of them. And so, he says, God does not change. And whatever he said, he's going to make good on it. Even if he has to die for it, which he did, As Paul made it very plainly, Christ came in uh, the book of Romans, chapter 15, I believe, or 14. He came to confirm the promises. So, he gave his life in order to confirm the promises that he made to Abraham, or else Abraham would would have lived his life in vain. And so, in verse 20, Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. And those that God said, bless Israel, will be blessed. And those that curse Israel will be cursed. And Balaam was not about to curse Israel. And yet a lot of people wanted to curse Israel and curse Judah and curse the people of God. We should not be a part of them. Verse 21, he has not observed iniquity in Jacob. What does that mean, he has not observed iniquity in Jacob? Does that mean Jacob never sins? Of course not. But God who sees things which are not as though they are, knowing that he's going to redeem them with his own blood and purify them, and he says the time will come where people will search for the sins and iniquities of Jacob and will find none. That's what he's talking about. And So what he's saying here is prophesying what God is going to accomplish in the future. And God is speaking here through Balaam. That he did not see any iniquity in Jacob nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. You see? Because God is going to totally blot out all sins and iniquities and redeem Israel with his own blood and restore them to him. And that's the intent of the statement. And the Lord God, he continues, is, that is, the Lord his God is with him. Not without him. In spite of his rebellion, in spite of all that he had done, God is with him. And the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. You see, those things are very important for us to comprehend and to understand. As God recorded them to be. And he that has an ear, let him hear. And then let's go to chapter 24 where it continues. And all these chapters are about the people of God. And what God felt about his own people. That nobody nobody is going to alter that relationship between God and, and, and his people, Israel, descendants physically of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In chapter twenty four he continues in verse, uh, verse five. How lovely are your tents of Jacob, your dwellings of Israel, like valleys that stretch out like gardens by the riverside, like apples planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. He shall pour water from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. That is, in many nations. This people is going to spread worldwide. That's the intent of God, in spite of all the evil that is in Israel, but God is going to be with them and heal them and, and bring them to deliverance. And then he says, speaking ultimately, His king shall be higher. That's at the bottom of verse 7. His king shall be higher than Agag. Remember who Agag was. The Maltite. And Amalek was the grandson of, uh, of Edom, of Esau, the twin brother of Jacob. And when Israel was coming out of the land, remember in Exodus chapter 17, Amalek was swooping down to try to destroy some of Israel. Why was Amalek doing it? Because Amalek was the son of Edom. And Edom felt that he had the birthright. And Amalek didn't want anybody from Israel coming and taking his birthright. And so Amalek was always thrown in, in the flesh of Israel. Uh, of Israel, and God told them, you better destroy them, obliterate them from under heaven. He said, don't forget to do it. And they constantly forgot to do it. And to this very day, they're dealing with that very problem. Yet God said, I swear by my own throne, and that's what he said there, as you can read it in the story in the war of Joshua and Amalek. Moses said that God swore, he stood up and he swore by his throne that he's going to have a war with Amalek from generation to generation until he blunts out That evil. That rises himself against the God of heaven and claims that the inheritance belongs to him. And so he says, He's king, the king of Israel, the one that came in the flesh, the one that married Israel, the one that will come again. And he says, And his kingdom shall be exalted. And then he continues in uh, verses, let's continue uh, in verse uh, 17, speaking about Israel again. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, speaking about the Messiah. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. And he's not talking about the first coming. He's talking about the second coming. Because Jacob will continue to be Jacob, the people of God. And he says, A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the tents of, of uh, tumult, or Seth in Hebrew. And that is the nations around that rise against Israel. In Verse 18, And Edom shall be a possession, seer also his enemies shall be a possession, while Israel does valiantly, and out of Jacob, verse 19, one shall have dominion. That is the king of Israel and destroy the remains of the city. Then he looked on Amalek, and he took up his oracle and said, Amalek was first among the nations. And it was all the nations that came out of Edom. Remember, uh, Jacob had 12 sons, Esau had, I believe, 12, and Edom had, uh, I think, 14 dukes, that spread into many nations. There many nations that came out of Edom. Iraq is one of them, the sheikdoms. Uh, along the gulf, uh, the Persian Gulf are among them. And many of them uh, dwelt in uh, in what became known by the Greeks as Phoenicia, meaning phonic or the red. In other words, when they saw the Edomites, sons of Edom, living in Lebanon because they took over that area from the Hamitic race, they called them phonic people, that is the red people, that means Edom. That's all they called them. Those people moved later on to Spain And they are known as the Spanish people. So, there are many nations that came out of Eden, And uh, some of them uh, believe in the God of Jacob. And uh, some of them will finally repent and acknowledge that God has a right to to, uh, determine to whom the inheritance belongs. And so, that war that was going on there in the Middle East spread uh, to Europe. You know, the Spanish Habsburgs, Spain, England. Birthright is always the issue. And then coming to the new world, North America, South America, the birthright is always the an issue. And God said he's going to deal with all those who rebel against his, his will, you not know, to determine to whom belongs the birthright. And so he said, that's what he's saying about Edom, about, about Amalek. And so Verse 20, then he looked on Amalek, and he took up his oracle and said, Amalek was first among the nations, but shall be last until he perishes. And That was the war that God declared against Amalek and all the enemies of Israel from generation to generation in Exodus 17. And God makes it very plain how he feels about his own people. And we should uh, see it from God's point of view, not man's point of view. So let's continue now to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Israel is going through the wilderness. Israel is rebelling. And Deciding that they are not going to come to the land of, of glory because they're not you know, they're not, they're not uh, uh, full of faith. In other words, they don't believe that God can deliver them. And so God says, "Okay, that's the way you want it. All of you are going to die here, even though all of them were in the marriage covenant." But He said, "Your sons will continue." And so now He's making a new marriage covenant, so to speak. He's renewing, in essence, the covenant. And that's something that people do never say about a marriage. You see, in human marriage, we are physical. We die, you know, we live a certain period of time and then we die. And so when we get married, that's it. Generally speaking. Uh, unless some, some people get married uh, several times. But in other case, you know, you know when you go through the marriage, you, you don't go and remarry the same person again and again and again and again. Or renew a covenant, even though some people have the custom of, say, you know, the 25th anniversary, 50th anniversary, and they renew their vows. But uh, the marriage, that God had with his people is on a generational basis. Since we are reaching the end of the tape, I'll say greetings again to all of God's people. Until next time, this is Mordecai Joseph. The preceding message was taken from the worldwide website at address www.biblestudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible Study. You have questions, the Bible has answers.